Hello there, this is Thomas again. Um, I'm going to be saying that a few more times before you've worked your way through this set, I think. And this is my commentary for Tetsuo 2, Body Hammer. Uh, the first, very first credit you saw on the screen was Toshiba Yamai. Um, well, surprise, surprise. Tsukamoto ran uh, out of money halfway through shooting this film once again. And uh, he turned again to the company F2, which also had helped him out on Tetsuo the Iron Man. So that company again was uh, the intermediary for him and uh, found the Toshiba EMI very much willing to work with Tsukamoto. Um, in fact, they were so willing to work with him that they wanted to sign him to a lifetime contract. And this is, of course, the period of you know, Japan's bubble economy. Um, especially, uh, you know, the video market was doing very, very well, as I had outlined already on my previous commentary for uh, Tetsuo, the first Tetsuo. And so uh, they felt there was a lot of uh, money to be made with a guy who could make uh, films pretty much every year on a very low budget. Uh, stuff that was getting uh, attention internationally uh, by this time as well as in Japan because Tetsuo the Iron Man had been running steadily uh, on release in Japan as well as um, at film festivals and uh, had been bought for distribution internationally. Incidentally the young man here, of course this is uh, Shinya Tsukamoto returning as the metal fetishist, the guy and the young man by his side here is, uh, uh, his real name is Shinichi Kawahara. Uh, this is uh, one of the first films that he worked on with, uh, with Tsukamoto. And um, he would become, for the next couple of years, Tsukamoto's right-hand man, his assistant director, assistant producer, especially assistant everything. Uh, how, how he got into Tsukamoto's circle, I will uh, uh, explain in a moment. Uh, just to get back to the Toshiba EMI, so Toshiba put money into uh, the completion of the film and uh, offered him, in addition, a lifetime contract. But Tsukamoto said, mm, I think, don't think that's a wise idea. <laughs> uh, uh, which was uh, very, very uh, wise of him to say. Because, of course, the whole, the whole bubble economy burst right after that. And uh, uh, Toshiba EMI was not, nowhere near has since been nowhere near as rich as they were in the early 1990s. And the video market has only continued to decline since that period. So um, he, Tsukamoto wisely said no, and uh, let's do a contract just for Tetsuo 2. Um, but Tsukamoto uh, negotiated to keep the theatrical rights to the film uh, and the international rights to the film. And everything and everything else went to uh, Toshiba EMI in return for their investment. Um, but you know, a video was Toshiba EMI would have been fine with that, uh, even given the, the theatrical and international success of the first Tetsuo film, because video was a much larger and much more profitable market uh, for an individual film release at that particular time. So. You can tell already Tsukamoto's two films into his career and already uh, even though he made independent movies the video market is already really hugely important uh, for him as a source of income and a, a way to sustainably continue making his independent films. 
And that's really true for 1990s Japanese cinema as a whole, because as a result of the profitability of the video market, uh, there was a constant demand for... Uh, by the way, look at the fish tank in the background. All the fish are the same color. Um, uh, the demand for, for genre movies was just really big. You know, video markets, uh, video stores always had... Uh, always subdivided their inventory by genre. People rented films by their genre, uh, if not by their star. And then, so there was always a lot of demand for, for genre product. And uh, that really led to essentially this sort of like medium budget uh, film production, genre based uh, gangster films, horror films, science fiction films. Um, that's a lot of what came out of 1990s Japanese cinema at that time, during the 1990s. And it allowed a lot of filmmakers that have since gone on to become very famous and very prolific uh, to essentially shoot a lot of films. And in Sakamoto's case, since he's so independent and takes so much time, it's maybe one a year or one every two years, but for people like Yoshikurasawa or Takashi Miike, it would be up to four or sometimes even more films in one year. That is all thanks to uh, the insatiable video markets. Incidentally, uh, even though Toshiba Yemai received a lot of rights at the time, Tsukamoto, his own company, Kaiju Theatre, has bought back all the rights, which is why uh, the film is now part of this set and uh, has been re-released uh, under Tsukamoto's supervision a number of times uh, in, in the intervening years. So we've uh, come to meet our, our central characters, uh, this, the same actor as in, uh, as in the first episode, Tomoro Taguchi, uh, is now married to uh, the actress who played uh, the, uh, the mutated woman in the, in the station from Tetsu the Iron Man, Nobu Kanaoka. They now play a couple and they have a young child and the young child is uh, going to be the, here we go, uh, through the kidnapping and the, the, the killing of the child is going to turn into uh, the catalyst for uh, the Iron Man transformation. And they've put a, a sort of like metal uh, bolt into him, uh, which will turn into like a central, uh, sort of like a MacGuffin uh, in this story, where it's uh, ostensibly uh, seems to be the, the reason for his mutation, but then it's discovered to not be at all, and the mutation came from inside of him. So, um, yeah, the actress, Taguchi and uh, Kanaoka, those are uh, the two that still stayed with Tsukamoto from uh, the whole uh, challenging experience of shooting uh, The Adventure of Denji Kozo and Tetsuo the Iron Man consecutively over a, a period of uh, about a year, year and a half. So they were the only ones who didn't give up on him. Uh, and also the assist an assistant director named Hiroyuki Kojima uh, just for completeness sake, was another person who uh, continued to work with Skamoto from that period. Um, however, for Nobu Kanaoka, uh, this was her last major contribution to Skamoto's films, at least as an actress. Uh, she makes a short appearance in Tokyo Fist, but that's it. Um, so her career as an actress is unfortunately short, and uh, I feel she didn't really get enough credit as an actor. 
if you look at um, her appearance in the adventure of Denchu Kozo, I've pointed out pointed that out on my commentary for that film that basically she plays three parts uh, in that movie and each of them very different with a very unique sort of uh, approach and a very unique style very different looking characters very different acting characters um, so she was definitely an actor with uh, a lot of uh, all the versatility and um, yeah so her role on the, on Tetsuo the Iron Man was fairly small um, so this is the biggest role she had her most prolific the most prolific part she played and uh, it's perhaps the least interesting role of the three uh, certainly it's um, perhaps the least interesting character of the three um, of course it had this character has a, a more substance than the, the character she played in in the first Tetsuo but still that character is so very memorable and here essentially she's the wife uh, a wife who shows quite a bit of commitment and uh, uh, dedication and inner strength but still her role within the story doesn't really go beyond being the wife and standing by the husband um, and maybe also there's the you know just simple simple fact of the wear that is caused by Itsukamoto's rather uncompromising personality and working methods uh, on his collaborators he is a very intense and uh, unyielding in some ways as a filmmaker and as an artist so that can really uh, take a toll on the people who work with him and uh, uh, that's something that's, that has been repeated several times throughout his career then again you know it's it's normal people go their own ways and decide they've had enough and So you'd have to ask Kanaoka herself. So up until this point, we're now in the the, the first chase and uh, the loss of the child, and we've already seen so far that um, this whole world that these characters live in is basically made of concrete and concrete and glass and steel. Um, so if we've moved away um, away from the suburban setting of the previous two films um, i've discussed that plenty on those commentaries and we've moving closer to uh, what was really the core of, uh, of skamoto's uh, um, preoccupations i would say you know modern human beings relation to their quite numbing and sterile urban environment um, and that's a, a setting and a theme he would continue using for years to come up to at least Snake of June and uh, on this film he uses that uh, interior as well as exterior uh, everything is gleaming high-rises, packed streets, um, concrete walls, bare concrete walls even in the case of, of their apartment uh, also the fashion sense you know it's very it's very it's very early 90s very comme des garçons very uh, yoji yamamoto influenced uh, designs there so on the whole it's uh, it's a much more conscious expression of the theme 
that was still somewhat instinctive when he was doing Tetsuya Iron Man and not fully realized. And as I've noted noted uh, on the previous commentary, it's it would take actually it would take his departure from cyberpunk when he made Tokyo Fist for that to really uh, come to really come out and be fully realized um, because he was really talking about the present day and not really about cyberpunk futures at all. So we've had at this point for the main characters, the, they start to sense uh, what is truly precious about their lives, which is their, their family and their, their child uh, as a result of that uh, kidnapping incident. See, they suddenly start to become physical, swimming, lifting weights, there's something has been awakened in them and inside their bodies especially. Um, Incidentally, that kidnapping scene was uh, shot in an actual shopping mall in an actual record store um, without having informed uh, the management in question and the people walking around that uh, this was going to happen for a movie, sh movie scene. So a lot of onlookers thought it was a real kidnapping case at the time. It's also interesting that initially it shows uh, the wife's character as being stronger than the husband, even though the husband is, our, uh, strictly speaking, our protagonist. Which brings up an interesting idea. You know, should this perhaps, after all, have been a female Tetsu? Should Tsukamoto uh, have made a, a female Tetsu and would, in, in doing so, would he have found this interesting... Um, uh, how would you say? Maybe the balance between these two major aspects of his filmography where on the one hand you have these Tetsuo movies and on the other hand uh, you have this very all these very quite feminist uh, films in which women are either the protagonists or play really central important parts. That is an interesting question uh, which hasn't been answered yet and uh, given the, the lack of success for the third Tetsuo, Tetsuo the Bullet Man, I doubt it's, it's ever going to happen. But it does say of course that the seed of what would become Tokyo Fist is already in Tetsuo 2 and already present in uh, how the character of, of uh, the wife is defined. She would become a much more uh, uh, much stronger and much more uh, multi-dimensional and a much more interesting character on Tokyo Fist. Uh, so I mentioned uh, the appearance of uh, Tsukamoto's new crew member and new right-hand man, Mr. Kawahara. Uh, he was central in uh, a newly assemble, assembled cast crew uh, that Tsukamoto put together after uh, losing everybody uh, in, the, in the wake of Tetsuo, the first Tetsuo. Um, this was the result of winning that grand prize at the Pia Film Festival for the adventure of Denchu Kozo. And since, uh, because he won that prize, his film was shown throughout the countries at special screenings. But since that movie is only 45 minutes long, uh, he made an additional 
little movie um, that could screen alongside it and that became a kind of um, how do you say a sort of co a, a compilation or a compendium of highlights in Skamoto's career basically introducing himself as a filmmaker and as a um, an artist and uh, that movie was called Tsukamoto 10,000 channel um, and it contained it was a wonderful little patchwork of um, uh, early his really bits and pieces from his very early uh, independent 8mm films that he made when he was in high school and when he was a student um, it contained video performance video recordings of some of the theater performances that he had put together it contained a bit of uh, animation work that he was doing, a bit of a mishmash, a really interesting and quite eccentric uh, mishmash of uh, what Tsukamoto had done and been up until uh, making The Adventure of Denshu Kozo. And it also included the trailer for Tetsuri Iron Man, which at that time he had already to a large extent uh, edited. So the people who were coming to see that already had a taste of what was coming next. And that was Tetsuo the Iron Man. And as I told you before, that was shot back to back with the adventure of Denchu Kozo. And um, Denchu Kozo was sort of shot back to back with Phantom of Regular Size. And uh, in between Tetsuo and Tetsuo 2, Shinya Tsukamoto made another film, which unfortunately is not part of this box set, which is the film Hiruko the Goblin. So, essentially, he had made uh, between up until you know the release of Tetsuo 2, he had made essentially five films back to back, um, which made him eminently suitable for uh, the new video era. So, uh, as I was saying, Adventure of Denchu Kozo, together with that uh, interesting little compilation film, toured national nationwide theaters in uh, around uh, 88, 89 um, and uh, Skamoto often went to these screenings uh, was there as a guest in person and he had brought along a series of qu uh, qu uh, questionnaires and one of the questions on the questionnaires would you be willing to work with me as a cast or crew member and if so tell me which which of the two you would like to be and so, uh, through this, he found, uh, uh, in the end, about 20 people. One of those was Shinichi Kawahara, who we saw pop up in the opening scene. Um, so by then, we're uh, in, in late 1989. Tetsuo, the Iron Man, has been released. Um, Tsukamoto has started already preparing Tetsuo too, and he's got this, uh, you know, this this thing with uh, uh, the Pia scholarship film because he'd won the grand prize. He could get financing for his next film. I talked about that on the, um, the Adventure of Denshi Kozo commentary. Um, but he was always also preparing while he was waiting for that to happen. He was preparing a Tetsuo too, so late 1989. Um, he was already looking for locations, potential locations, and one was the Sapporo beer factory in Ebisu in Tokyo. Um, but in order to be able to shoot there, he had to also wait for permission. So um, he was waiting for permission on that. He was waiting on the, um, 
the PR scholarship possibilities. And then uh, that fell through. And at the same time, this um, offer to make Hirko the Goblin, which was a commercial film that he was hired to make, came through. And uh, he went on to do that, took uh, 10 of those 20 new crew members with him uh, to work on that film, even though most of that was done by a, a crew of seasoned veterans. And left the other 10 to continue to prepare Tetsuo 2. And then when it was clear that Tetsuo 2 was going to be an independent production and uh, PR was not interested in uh, making that uh, the scholarship film, he realized that he was going to have to do that entirely independently again. And he set up his production, properly set up his production company, uh, Kaiju Theater, specifically to make Tetsuo 2 as an indie production. So you get a pattern there forming for uh, Tsukamoto as the independent filmmaker, which is a pattern that has repeated up until the present day and is most likely going to continue repeating for as long as Tsukamoto chooses to be a continue, continuing active filmmaker. So uh, the Sapporo Beer Factory didn't uh, work out. They didn't get permission to shoot there. So they ended up in uh, this, this location where they are now, which was uh, an abandoned iron foundry. Um, which was uh, full of uh, a strange black dust that would, when they did explosions there, would fill the entire space. Yes, the pitfalls of uh, low-budget independent filmmaking. Um, they started out shooting Tetsuo 2 with a complete crew of 60 people in the end. Um, it took again, the film took about a year to shoot. Uh, only 20 crew members survived. 40 people just ran away or stopped showing up. Um, there's a pattern developing there too. And um, uh, Hiromi Ayara, who uh, was one of them, and she had worked for PIA and she had worked for F2, and she uh, went on to work on Tetsuo 2 as well as on Tokyo Fist. And uh, she said to me about this film that, uh, you know, Tsukamoto basically still wanted to do everything himself in spite of the fact of having 60 crew members. And uh, most of those crew members were quite inexperienced. So uh, when Tsukamoto was handling everything, they, hadn't, they didn't really have a clue what to do and they were just standing around. So a lot of people just left because they felt they didn't have anything to contribute. So we're now starting to uh, figure out the scale and scope as well as the, the goal of uh, the guy, the metal fetishist's new uh, sort of like cult outfit that is going to, uh, that has been designed to awaken humans through uh, a systematic fusion of, of flesh and metal. And it's interesting that every, uh, you'll probably remember if you listen to my commentary on Tetsuo the Iron Man, you'll remember I pointed out those cutouts of, of black athletes that are uh, hung, hung up all around the, that tiny uh, uh, lair 
of the metal fetishist. Well, here, of course, they've been replaced by athletes, proper athletes. Um, well, at least people playing proper athletes. So weightlifters, boxers, etc. And speaking of boxing, that, of course, also shows another seed of his next film, Tokyo Fist, already being present in Tetsuo 2. Um, so these are uh, the, the cult members who are in perfect physical shape, but who uh, the metal fetishist wants to perfect even further by fusing them with metal and um, using this technique of this unusual bolt that they shoot into the in, into the body, and that should cause a, a, a you know an Iron Man style metamorphosis to come from inside. Of course, we're going to learn that it goes wrong completely, and the bolt is. Um, has nothing to do with this uh, actual, the actual reasons for such a metamorphosis. And the only one who can truly transform is uh, the character of, uh, played by Taguchi, whose character name, by the way, is very similar to his own name, which is Tomo Taniguchi. But yeah, um, uh, you know, it's a, the, the, this whole uh, metal fetishist cult is very masculine. It's a very strongly male point of view, as I, as I mentioned earlier. That's true for all the Tetsuo films. You know, it's about the, the whole Tetsuo concept, essentially, is about building strength and it's about uh, taking revenge and it's about the use of force and use of violence. Um, so if I if if we're going to think about what uh, about the possibility of uh, a female Tetsuo in the future, then what would a truly female equivalent to Tetsuo be like? Then you'd have to find a very conscious deviation from all those aspects of what makes the Tetsuo film, but at the same time um, make that deviation a, a, a whole, the whole point of the film. So what would be the alternative? Um, Good question. Maybe that screenplay should be written by Ursula Le Guin, perhaps. That might be a very interesting proposition and something that could certainly bring Tsukamoto back to the Tetsuo world. Yeah, the whole experiment, the whole experiment idea of this this doctor character being there. Of course, there was a doctor character in Tetsuo the Iron Man, but he wasn't. Uh, uh, he was not uh, helping out the metal fetishist uh, in creating or bringing about these transformations. So it's much more uh, Frankenstein-like here than in the than in the previous film. And of course, also much more, let's say, typically cyberpunk in many ways than the first film. You know, it was it was because of the the, the reach that uh, that Tetsuo the Iron Man eventually had in the had in the audience it find, found that Skamoto learned basically learned about cyberpunk. I mean, he'd been aware of it. He'd been aware of everything that was considered cyberpunk, but he hadn't really, he says at least, not been aware of the term. Uh, and that there was such a thing as cyberpunk. Simply had been inspired by it uh, on, a, on a less uh, aware level, less conscious level. But of course, by the time he makes Tetsuo 2, he knows about all of this stuff. So 
um, yeah, it becomes a more uh, not only a more conscious expression of what he was what he was doing in terms of you know this theme of human beings and the, and the city environment, but uh, also much more uh, conscious of being cyberpunk. And of course, this whole sequence here with uh, the, the gun coming out of uh, uh, our lead character's uh, chest, etc., and uh, that that face mask being placed on him is very, very, very consciously Cronenberg-like. Of course, Cronenberg also has this these very central uh, um, scientist characters. Uh, in let's say, in his case, in Cronenberg's case, the, the cult leader and the scientists are, are one. And here they are two separate characters. Um, and uh, also a difference is that uh, the the existence and the scope of, of like the cult the, the cult of worshippers around this central villainous character is uh, mostly implied or suggested often in Cronenberg's films where here it's made very very real and very present. Incidentally, by this time we start to notice that uh, uh, Kanauka, Nobu Kanauka, the wife, has more or less disappeared from the film. She will be back later. Also, in the, with this setting here, was obviously, as I said, it's an iron foundry, so it's it's kind of logical. But nevertheless, an iron foundry doesn't look like this set, so they really dressed it up and dressed it up very impressively. As I keep pointing out, you know, this the. the the production design on Skamoto's films, especially knowing their modest means, it's incredibly impressive. You know, you get these machine-scapes, essentially. Um, they, he does create like a, a truly alternative world within the world that we know. I also really like these uh, sort of like clunky and uh, this sort of clunky uh, armor that the metal fetishists uh, worshippers wear. It looks kind of it, the, the design is kind of naive and almost comic book, you know, children's comic like, which is also an aspect of, of Tsukamoto's uh, style. Um, go look again at the adventure of Denchu Kozo and the, the, the closing credits and the little animations that he makes there. So it has a very similar uh, sort of naive sense. Also speaking of uh, speaking of design, of course, you know, the, the, that world that he creates is entirely created in the camera. I've pointed that out before, but um, much of it is, in addition to the set design, in addition to what is in front of the camera, it's a, a lot of it is about editing and sound that creates something bigger than simply an object that is in front of a camera and creates, in fact, truly a Tsukamoto, Tsukamoto world. Although interestingly, he uses a lot less stop motion in uh, this film than in the first Tetsuo. 
and the first stop motion sequence that we saw earlier was uh, it's interestingly also in black and white even though the whole film is in this whole film is in color um immediately uh, sort of immediately after tetsuo 2 um Kamoto once again did uh, uh, in the same style uh, a, a very short uh, 50 second uh, film for MTV uh, which was one of those you know, they had these uh, station ideas IDs where they would ask some animator or filmmaker to make a, a very short film that would always end with the MTV logo and Kamoto made one as well and he used uh, a lot of a lot of the Tetsuo style stop motion in black and white uh, on that one and um, interestingly the music on that little station idea was by Nine Inch Nails uh, which was the result of uh, an earlier attempt to collaborate. Nine, uh, Trent Reznor had been uh, a huge fan of Tetsuo, the first Tetsuo film and had contacted Skamoto to make a music video for Nine Inch Nails and uh, for some for reasons that still remain a little bit uh, unclear and perhaps a little bit dubious perhaps that was uh, a <laughs> that leaves some potential for um, um, suggesting sabotage let's say um, um, that never happened and that collaboration on a music video fell through so that that's mtv station id uh, short film was uh, 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 so like uh, a way to vindicate that uh, that loss and of course later uh, there was a Nine Inch Nails song especially composed for uh, the closing credits of Tetsuo the Bullet Man and speaking of black and white in color uh, you know it's, over the years many people who loved Tetsuo the Iron Man have said they don't like Tetsuo 2 at all because precisely because of the color they, a lot of people seem to have loved Tetsuo the Iron Man for the fact that it was a lot you know eraser had like this black and white uh, industrial slight, slightly grimy looking uh, experimental film so this just just the simple fact of having a, uh, a film in color plus a much more uh, developed you, know, you could say kind of conventional narrative and disappointed a lot of people in the first, uh, in their, you know, initially. Um, I have no problem at all with uh, the color. I think it's, I think it's gorgeous, um, and I feel that Skamoto has a really great sense for color and how to use it. Uh, in the film, the predominant hue there is, uh, you know, predominantly the use of color is blue on the one hand, which he says is uh, the color that is reflected in the skyscrapers in Tokyo. So he felt that that was sort of uh, the, the color of, um, you know, the, the postmodern concrete and glass and steel city that he talks about. Um, where a lot of the, the film is shot, but, uh, you know, in actual fact, there's not that many parts of Tokyo that are like that. Much of Tokyo is, is low rise, uh, aside from a few centers around major stations. Um, one of which is the Shinjuku station and on the west side of Shinjuku station you have the skyscraper, skyscraper district uh, as it's known uh, somewhat uh, prosaically uh, where uh, the, the somewhat famous I guess Tokyo Metropolitan Government Bureau which is sort of like this twin towered uh, 
twin towered building that if you have seen Battle Royal 2 you can see it uh, collapsing in the opening scene of that film. That's essentially in that area where all the uh, you know the sort of like the concrete sterile city scenes in Tetsuo 2 were shot. So if you've never been to Tokyo and you're going there for the first time expecting to see uh, uh, the Tetsuo city uh, you may be slightly disappointed to find it's a little bit more uh, life you know everyday lifelike and as a contrast of course to the blue there is the the red you know the fiery red uh, that uh, symbolizes uh, this this cult of the athletes and weightlifters of course the, that is also the color of the molten metal that we see from this iron foundry and that expresses you know, more the, the, the vibrancy and the, the, obviously the heat of, uh, of uh, trained, active human bodies. And still, the wife is uh, not present in the, in the film. And here we go, Sla flashback to boxing. Sets up the future, Tokyo Fist. So, uh, just a thing about the fact of this box set that you own now, um, its existence, uh, that is entirely thanks to Tsukamoto's independence. Uh, he keeps control of everything he does, essentially, and uh, uh, just like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, even when he uh, loses a number, has lost a number of the rights to his films, or even when he hasn't um, produced them originally himself, as in the case of Hiroko the Goblin. He has since uh, bought up the rights that he didn't own. So even the films that he made uh, as a director for hire in the past are, uh, are now uh, owned by him. This is true for Hiroko the Goblin, this is also true for uh, Gemini, his film from 2000, his Edogawa Rampo horror adaptation, wonderful, beautiful film. Unfortunately, also not part of this box set, but then again, if a lot of people buy this one, the next one may well complete the collection. So, for a company like uh, Arrow Video, it's uh, you know this, it becomes simpler to make these kinds of box sets because they don't need to rake all these works together from various sources and from various different rights holders. You know, some one license deal with Kamoto's company Kaiju Theater is enough, and that's one reason why his work has always remained available. You know, it's always coming out in new editions. Um, all the way back to the VHS era, um, Laserdisc, then DVD, now Blu-ray. Um, surely uh, you'll see a streaming deal happening very soon, I would not be surprised. And it's also why special editions of his work with, you know, lots of extra features can be done. 
like in the case of this box set because um, Kamoto has all this material um, and Toshiba EMI uh, did a wonderful Laserdisc box set of the both Tetsuo's films and the, and the Adventure of Denchu Kozo in 1993 um, that is, is all sort of like a little cherished treasure in the history of, uh, of Tsukamoto's uh, work and filmography. So, Kana, the wife, is back in the film and uh, makes a, a very crucial discovery, which is that her husband's transformation has come from within himself and not from that bolt which was shot into his chest but never actually got into his chest, thanks to the old trick of something in the pocket stopping the bullet. I'll trick that still works. So, um, if all of that uh, has come from within the character himself, of course we're going to find out that the, you know, Tsukamoto's going to come up with uh, an explanation later on where we find out about the past and the fact that he and uh, the hero and the villain are actually brothers. Um, but yeah, what it essentially says in terms of what Kamoto is trying to express here about our lives is, yeah, we must find within ourselves, and we can find within ourselves, the power to break free from the numbing effect of, of our postmodern lives, uh, to break free from the stress uh, of modern living. now of course that they're having this fight this argument that also that only adds fuel to the fire really here we go uh, just as in the first Tetsuo film where uh, 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 arguments uh, with between the, the couple sped up a passion between the couple sort of sped up the transformation now there's an there is a, immediately an interesting contrast between Tetsuo the Iron Man and Tetsuo Body Hammer. In this film, uh, eroticism, sexuality is uh, is largely absent up until uh, the final scene. So, part of that expression of sterility between uh, sterility in uh, of of these characters' lives is in the absence of of you know. Uh, sexual passion between them. There's essentially no sex between them. Um, which is a great contrast, of course, with with the first Tetsuo, in which uh, sex was a very, very strong element and strong presence, uh, and also in bringing about uh, the transformation into the Iron Man. And this is actually going to uh, play a role a little bit later when uh, we start to learn about um, the past the past of these two characters the, the, the hero and the villain as being connected and uh, sex plays a role in there and then when uh, uh, the metal fetishist has uh, has Kana the wife uh, watch essentially watch the flashback as, as weird as that may sound very tellingly, she's uh, she just recoils in horror. 
Ah, this is one of the original contributions that is not in Tetsuo the Iron Man, of course, the, the cycling scene, which does return in Tetsuo the Bullet Man. And uh, very memorable. It keeps uh, it keeps the character played by Taguchi very uh, very uh, down to earth in a way. And of course, it also makes it possible to show his strength because he can keep up and catch up with the car just uh, by being on a bicycle. Expresses uh, what what the transformation is doing to him, and it's going to get stronger and stronger. So here again we are among these high-rises and it seems to be that they're kind of constantly going in circles around the same block. But then again you have to be inventive. You don't have the means and uh, of course you sh you're in the streets shooting without any sort of permission from the authorities, not having informed the police at all. You're gonna have to be creative and uh, make sure that you don't uh, stand out that far without but still not compromising the vision you have mm, yes, this is great because up against the walls like if, as if he's spider-man or something and we're gonna have a little cameo here in a second there he is that's uh, mr tokitoshi shiota a japanese film critic and early supporter of uh, Tsukamoto, a very vocal supporter. He has always remained of Tsukamoto's work as well as the work of Takashi Miike. Those are two um, two filmmakers in particular that uh, Shiota has always been a very vocal supporter of and uh, I know how that feels. Uh, but uh, yeah, Tokito Shiota had actually been present in Rome at uh, the Fanta Fest where um, Tetsuo, the Iron Man, won uh, the best film Award. And uh, he was actually quite close, Shiota was quite, clo quite close to the, the, the gentleman who was uh, responsible for getting Tetsuo the Iron Man into Rome, uh, Yoichi Komatsuzawa, a fellow film critic, and who was the man who uh, set up the Yubari International Fantastic Film Festival. If you've seen Kill Bill, go go Yubari, that is based on the Yubari Film Festival, at least in terms of the name. And uh, Tokitoshi Shiota, the gentleman whose cameo you just saw, uh, later became the creative director, program, main programmer of the uh, Yubari Film Festival. Um, a gentleman who's been very important, I think, for promoting um, Japanese genre cinema, Japanese cult cinema, and a number of very specific directors that have since gone on to uh, a wide international acclaim. And he certainly played his part in that. And he's always uh, also very supportive of um, outside interest in these films and these filmmakers. I can certainly say that he was very supportive of me uh, when I wrote my books about uh, Takashi Miike and Shinya Tsukamoto. And uh, so, yes, I mentioned again the... the the Fanta Fest in uh, Rome, Italy, where uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man won Best Film seemingly out of nowhere. Um, this was kind of bizarre to many people because, you know, Tetsuo the Iron Man was just a completely independent, basically amateur production. And uh, in 1989, 
it was inconceivable for many people in the Japanese film industry that such a film could win an award at a foreign film festival because Japanese films weren't winning awards at film festivals anymore at all. You know, it's only uh, in the 1980s there was uh, Kurosawa winning uh, Cannes with Kagemusha and there was um, Shohei Imamura doing the same thing with The Ballad of Narayama. And that was it. And of course, these were all an established masters. Um, so some nobody with a film shot on shot in his uh, on, in his spare time on 16 millimeter winning an award at a foreign film festival, even as relatively modest a film festival as the Fanta Fest in Rome, uh, was big news back in Japan. And it certainly helped to. Um, uh, to drum up interest in uh, the release of Tetsuo, because Tetsuo was properly cinematically, theatrically released. Uh, initially in uh, one theater in Tokyo, in the late night slot, so at the end of the very end of the day. Um, starting from July 1989, and it played there for three months, and it really gained worth of word of mouth um, a critical notice as well, bit by bit. And the last scheduled screen, already three months, is for a, a completely independent film playing in, a, in a once, once a day, is, was unheard of. Um, the last screening was sold out completely. So they decided to add an extra screening that same night, right afterwards. Just to accommodate all the people who had come to see the film. So you can imagine how amazing uh, the word of mouth on the, on the movie was at that time. And from there on, there was a gradual kind of nationwide diffusion also that continued uh, for quite a long time. In fact, into the second half of 1991. Um, so over two years, for over two years, Tetsuo the Iron Man, uh, his, its theatrical uh, release, its theatrical distribution lasted. So yeah, then uh, there was, yes, there was this amazing uh, prize, or this amazing opportunity of the prize in, uh, in, in Rome, where incidentally the president of the jury was Lloyd Kaufman of Troma Films. Um, and the film played there with no subtitles. Of course, there's very little dialogue in, in Tetsuo the Iron Man. And it turned out very quite clearly that the film is so strong visually that it didn't need dialogue or subtitles. But there's an interesting fact there that is there's something forgotten, which is that uh, Tetsuo was not the only Japanese film in competition at that particular festival, and also not the only Japanese film winning prizes at that festival. There was another film called Kiss to Moonlight, which won at that same festival in Rome that same year the Best Director and Best Actress prizes. But nobody remembers that film. So, but by contrast, Tetsuo the Iron Man, that was the beginning of a huge international following. It created an international following for itself. Um, so that had, in a sense, nothing to do with it being Japanese. But um, I argue it's, that happened because it fit quite snugly within two developments that have been ongoing 
in world cinema, Western cinema, for quite a long time. One of course, one of which, of course, was cyberpunk, and the other one was body horror. So, you know, people who had who were very familiar, and of course, if you're going to a fantastic film festival, you're going to have people who are going to be very, very familiar with films like Blade Runner, or like The Terminator, or uh, the work of Cronenberg, or David Lynch, or Clive Barker, or Sam Raimi. From all of which, you can find elements or at least uh, you know a similar vibe similar wavelength similar concerns similar designs in uh, the tetsuo films now skamoto has pointed out one essential difference between the tetsuo movies and cyberpunk uh, in its in its say its general more general western incarnation he says the Tetsuo films are about the destruction of the contemporary city. And cyberpunk is actually about the period that happens after that destruction. So that's an essential difference that Skamata himself has pointed out, where he's, he's aware of the, the overlap and, and the, the affinity, but there's one essential difference as well, and that, is, that essential difference, of course, comes from, as I explained later, um, simply the, the, the contemporary urban experience. And Skamoto is... Uh, Skamoto was born in central Tokyo. He's from Shibuya, Harajuku. And grew up there in the early... was born in 1960, so he saw the development of that area all around him, you know, which, which basically turned from uh, actually uh, low-rise, flattened, still very much post-war, to uh, being highly developed as the, the Tokyo Olympics in 1964 happened. And many of the locations of the Tokyo Olympics were in uh, Shibuya. So to him, you know, the, the, the rise of the, the, the postmodern city is something that he has seen all around him. And so perhaps simple, by, by very nature, that's Kamoto himself is a cyber is a cyberpunk. And of course the you know in cyberpunk the cyberpunk imaginary in terms of its in its Western incarnation, you know, Japan has a very central position. I mean look at of course William Gibson's work, you know, starting starting from the the, the imagined Chiba City. Um, look at all the, 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 the Japanese language signs in Blade Runner. You know, Japan was very much the image of the future. Um, into certainly into the 1980s, when uh, when the American uh, economy went into a recession, but the Japanese economy reached its its all-time highest peak. And then you get the idea of the of, you know techno techno Japan uh, f succeeding everywhere where. Uh, America's traditional uh, capitalist uh, idea of a future has, has, has failed. So even in terms of its Japanese-ness, even though it wasn't essentially, perhaps not essentially, uh, an, an aspect that got, uh, that got the film noticed that much, um, 
uh, or at least in the sense that not everything Japanese was going to get the same was going to get the same is going to have the same impact or the same following. But yeah, the aspect of Japan science fiction, cyberpunk future, uh, fusion of, of uh, humans and machines that was all, all very much uh, in the forefront of, of Westerners' minds when they saw Tetsuo coming out. And also there was another there was another really nice bit of synergy uh, around this time, late 80s, early 90s, which was with uh, Katsuhiro Otomo's animated film, Akira, of course. Um, you know, very similar similar sounding titles. And as you probably know, there is a character named Tetsuo in Akira. Uh, similar themes, similar imagery. Um, so these films coming out basically at the same, exactly the same time as most people, as far as most people were concerned. There was a, you know, one, one plus one is three. Yeah, you know, it had that effect. Um, Kamoto himself has referred to uh, to uh, Otomo's film as the smart and cool older brother, whereas the Tetsuo films are uh, the ugly and stubborn little brother. And that's an interesting uh, an interesting uh, expression, especially in the context of uh, how uh, he d he defines his own characters and himself. Remember on, on the adventure of Denchu Kozo, um, that sort of like freakish character, ugly and stubborn little guy. Uh, was a sort of a reflection of uh, Tsukamoto's self-image at the time. So he even talks about Tetsuo in, in, that, in that regard. And uh, yeah, Tetsuo, as I said, it spent two years uh, on theatrical release in Japan, but it's also spent three years on the festival circuit internationally. Um, it was still playing at festivals in, uh, in, in around 93. Because um, a lot of festivals, when, when Tetsuo 2 was done and was available, uh, a lot of festivals that never showed the first Tetsuo um, decided to do double bills. This is something that happened at my home, my hometown festival, the Rotterdam International Film Festival, I very much remember. And then also Tetsuo was released theatrically in the UK in 1991 and in the US in 1992. So the shelf life was enormously long and continues to this very day. As I said, it's been released and re-released in various formats and in various incarnations um, so far. So it is truly a canonical film. Um, and it, it, it blazed a lot of trails also for Japanese cinema as a whole in that period. Um, uh, the same year that Tetsuo Iron Man came out, 1989 originally, was the same year that uh, a number of uh, important, soon-to-be important uh, filmmakers would make their debut films. Takeshi Kitano, for example, made Violent Cop, his first film as a director. Uh, less known internationally is Junji Sakamoto, but he was, made a big splash in Japan with his first film, Knockout, in 1989. Of course, there's Shinya there's also Masayuki Suo, who would later make Shall We Dance. There's also the rise of the four devil, the so-called four devils of the pink film. Uh, out of, uh, and out of those four, there were two, Takahisa Zeze and Toshihiro Sato, who made their debuts in 1989. 
Um, so that's really 1989 is the start of essentially the generation of the, of the 1990s Japanese cinema that, that brought Japanese film back to international attention via the film festivals and uh, as well as international distribution which uh, is a is we could say um, a development that uh, that was cemented in 1997 in at the Cannes Film Festival and the Venice Film Festival you know in 1997 um, Shohei Imamura again on the uh, the Golden Palm in Cannes with a film that starred a lot of the actors that were of the 1990s generation even though Imamura himself was of a previous generation of filmmaking uh, same year in Cannes, Naomi Kawase, who also came up in the 1990s through independent 8mm filmmaking, just like Tsukamoto. She won uh, the Golden Camera for the best debut film. And of course, Naomi Kawase has gone on to be, you know, a, a, a darling of the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, the same year, Venice Film Festival, Takeshi Kitano won the Golden Lion with his film Fireworks, Hanabi. And incidentally, on the jury that gave him that prize was Shinya Tsukamoto. Um, yeah, so even though Tetsuo, going back a little bit, um, Tetsuo the Iron Man, the first one, had a very long shelf life in terms of festivals and international distribution, uh, Tsukamoto was not really present at any of that. He didn't he didn't travel to other countries for Tetsuo the Iron Man simply because he was busy shooting Hiroko the Goblin and then Tetsuo 2. So it was not until Tetsuo 2 was ready and was getting selected for film festivals that he himself got to travel with his film and meet uh, his, his fans internationally. And his memory of it is actually that uh, all, the, all the most of the reactions were negative but this is uh, uh, simply uh, in great part the shock of seeing how foreign film festivals work and that audience at, every, at film festivals generally quite often walk out of films because there's a lot of films to see so they become more selective and that people get up and, uh, and walk out during, uh, during the end credits which we find normal but in Japan rarely happens or at least that didn't happen at the time um, so he has sort of like negative memories of the impact that uh, that Tetsuo 2 made on foreign audiences, but uh, it's, it was actually not that bad. And again, you know, he, we are still watching it, so truly it cannot have been uh, that badly received at all. One thing that did happen, though, was uh, uh, that Kamato, thanks to that, met a lot of the filmmakers that would come to be influenced by uh, by his Tetsuo films. Um, the international premiere of Tetsuo 2 took place at the uh, sadly now defunct Avoria's Fantastic Film Festival in France. And there he got to meet several uh, French admirers who now have become quite famous, such as Gaspar Noé. Um, or uh, Marc Caro, half of the Jeunet Caro directing duo. Um, and 
The two of those, plus Tsukamoto, went to visit the house of Alejandro Hodorowski as well, who lives in Paris. So, uh, in spite of some negative memories about uh, audience reception, Tsukamoto has some very fond memories of, of traveling the world and meeting a lot of people as a result of uh, Tetsuo II going international. So we have uh, moved on to, uh, we've seen the fight, the confrontation between the, the Iron Man and the metal fetishist, with the Iron Man uh, clearly being the superior version of the two. Uh, perhaps the metal fetishist had more uh, control over his own powers, but uh, the Iron Man was at a much further stage of development. So uh, the metal fetishist was motivated mostly by a kind of sibling rivalry or an envy of that fact that the Iron Man was in a more advanced stage or could be in a more advanced stage which of course we here we get to realize why that's how sibling rivalry exists in this flashback that I mentioned already a few times um, the father character here in this flashback is played by an actor called Su Jin Kim um, who was another actor, stage actor, who came from the, the troupe of Juro Kara. I've mentioned him a couple of times on the previous two commentaries already. Um, the great uh, figure, the you know, great figurehead of, of underground countercultural theater in Tokyo. Tsukamoto continued to, uh, to recruit from those circles. <laughs> Also an interesting thing here about these flashbacks is that it's it's a very marked contrast in many ways to the scenes set in the present. Of course, it's not like sepia tone monochrome rather than a very uh, you know, saturated color of most of the film. But also, it's it's all of this is you look at the settings and it's all sort of like rundown um, physicality. In a sense, it's all it's all you know. It's a wooden paper house and uh, uh, lots of plants, etc. So the setting is the complete opposite of of uh, what in the film is the, uh, serves as the present day. You know, in fact, it's it, the, the thing is so physical you can almost smell, <laughs> you can almost smell uh, how uh, the, the sweat and the, and the mold and the, and the, the old wood, etc. But at the same time, you know, this revelation of, uh, the, you know, all the motivations and the background of the characters, uh, I guess, is one, of the, is one of the elements of what disappointed some of the fans of the first Tetsuo film. You know, they probably found that it was too literal and too explanatory and a little bit too conventional in terms of its storytelling. I also wonder if maybe they could relate less to a tale which is about a married couple with a child. Perhaps uh, the, you know, the, the boyfriend-girlfriend situation is, uh, was more closer to their heart or something. Who knows? And as you just saw now, I come back to the, uh, the issue of uh, sexuality and the lack thereof. Uh, Kana, the wife, recoils in horror uh, at the vision of, of 
sexuality. A very telling moment. I still wonder why it's Kamoto wouldn't make a fully erotic film. I guess he came very, very close with The Snake of June. You know, if you look at these sequences, um, there's uh, so many aspects to it. It's absolutely not conventional. You know, even though there's, uh, you know, this, it's totally fetishistic, and it's there's a, there's a. a dominant and, and uh, submissive aspect to it it's definitely not uh, you know your average titillating eroticism titillating sex scene at all of course certainly not with this very dramatic ending um well yeah so snake of june is eventually the film there where uh, eroticism came very much to the foreground and um, it's a film that over the years I have come to like more and more. And uh, I, would, uh, I would not hesitate to say these days it's uh, probably my favorite Shinyats Kamoto film. But uh, absolutely check it out if you haven't already. It's a film that's going to that's gonna stick with you. Well, all of Sukunoto's films stick with you, really. And they, they, they grow... Uh, with time and they grow with multiple viewings and uh, you start to see different things in them that you didn't catch the first time and especially as you as you watch them in the context of uh, his other works you start to notice things how how the films how the films connect what uh, what the bonds are how he, he evolves from film to film how bits and pieces of an earlier film return in a later film or how an earlier film as i pointed out a few times already contains the seeds of of a later film and in the case of snake of june he is tsukamoto has said that the basic idea for that uh, was something he already had when around the time that he made tetsuo the iron man we'll have to take his word for it of course but uh, it's, it's, i mean it doesn't it doesn't necessarily surprise me um, in relation to um, what we can actually find in terms of these, you know, back and forth influences between his own films. That's an interesting, uh, speaking of developments and evolution, that's an interesting uh, evolution also in the in the music compared to uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man and Tetsuo 2 and Body Hammer. Um, 
Chiwishikawa, of course, again made the music. Um, he says that Kamoto's directions for making the music to him were much more precise, which uh, you know is entirely in line with with the reading of Tetsuo II as a much more consciously made film. Um, and Ishikawa himself also he felt that uh, you know loud music alone is not always the best option if you want to uh, express uh, something that has impact, uh, if you want to express strength or power or even destruction. So you can play much more with, with volume and with uh, uh, tempo, with beats, etc. So one thing that he added here, which is very different, is, is you bits and pieces of choral singing. And that's something that really foreshadows uh, Gemini eight years later, which uh, for which uh, which has a very memorable uh, choral soundtrack. Um, for the instrumental parts, uh, Chiwishikawa said, of course, Chiwishikawa uh, died uh, uh, very recently. Rest in peace. Um, he said that. Um, when he made the music for Tetsuo II, his big inspiration was this poster of uh, uh, frogs. He had a poster in his studio. He's a, he loves frogs. Uh, he had a poster in his studio um, of all the native species of frog in Japan. And that inspired him, uh, as a, gave him a motif for the music. So with the music, if you listen carefully, um, you can notice uh, or visualize uh, how it kind of expresses the uh, kind of the crawling and jumping movements of a frog. So, despite being absent from a large part of the film, Kana, the wife, has come back to the has come to the rescue. Actually, now that I mention it, it's not really that it's not really that typical uh, and, and, and put upon a wife character, is it? Is she, um, in a sense? Up until this point, it's her husband turned into the Iron Man that has been kind of the damsel in distress. And it's her that found the, the major clue in the story. And it's her that has come to rescue him in the end from um, the evil influence of, uh, of his villainous brother. And it is she who fully accepts now his, uh, his mutation, his new state, and uh, who will travel alongside him out into the world again to uh, destroy the city of Tokyo to create a new life or a new world to uh, keep the terminology of the, of the first film. Also, on watching it again, truly, I, uh, I have a hard time imagining 
Well, I can imagine why people would not have liked it in comparison to the first Tetsuo around the time it came out. Uh, you know, people often uh, take uh, connect their identity to the to the things they love. So they would have uh, a lot of people would have connected to uh, the very experimental nature of Tetsuo the Iron Man, and therefore would not have liked the more conventional aspects of Tetsuo too. But um, yeah, now watching it again, I mean, for me, Tetsuo 2 was the first Tsukamoto film I saw. So it has a special place in my heart, purely, purely uh, only and only for that reason. But uh, I've continued to really enjoy it with all the many times I've seen it since and revisiting it now again was a lot of fun. And so I can only feel that it's been uh, unjustly maligned through the years. But then again, it's, uh, it's of course long taken its revenge on that uh, um, uh, against that injustice because here it is again you know still alive still kicking still uh, attempting to turn the world to rust um, now it's a wonderful film it looks fantastic uh, the designs are great the ideas uh, it's wonderfully well constructed and uh, and it would it would lead Sukamoto onto so many wonderful more wonderful films ah our little coda yes Let's not forget the coda scene. The beauty, this is here we have that new world then. The beauty in destruction and the beauty of destruction. Ah, well, it's nicely, well, it's nicely, nicely realized, I say. Still, as, as a conclusion, as the conclusion goes, the beauty of destruction maybe somewhat limited as a, as a conclusion. In, in terms of uh, you know all the quite intriguing themes and ideas that we've been watching popping up throughout this film being developed throughout this film but that I think has to do with the limitations of cyberpunk as a genre and Skamoto had to step outside that genre to fully develop his potential as a filmmaker and as an artist which would happen on the next film which is Tokyo Fist um, so you all uh, be I will be uh, Talking about that next, well, of course, that depends on when, in which order you decide to listen to the commentaries, but that's the order in which I have recorded them. Um, so we come to the closing credits, which are accompanied by a song by Tomoyasu Hote. Um, and of course, his presence is thanks to, uh, to the involvement in the film of Toshiba Yamai, which was also a record company and was also Tomoyasu Hote's record company. And of course, Hote. His work is now internationally famous thanks to Kill Bill, you know, New Battles Without Honor and Humanity, which went, uh, which was on the soundtrack to that film, was originally on the soundtrack of uh, a Junji Sakamoto film of that same title. Um, but thanks to the Kill Bill soundtrack, it went on to become uh, basically uh, the, the, the leading soundtrack to every single sports program ever. Um, in terms of the song, though, the terms of and the, the song that you that we're listening to here over the end credits, it's slightly ironic that that song starts with uh, um, a line that kind of contradicts uh, the style and the look of the of Tetsuo too, because the first line in the in the song is all I can all I can see is black and white. Um, maybe that drove the point home for all those people that initially didn't like the movie. Well, I didn't. I sure hoped I'd like it now. And I sure hope that you found this commentary uh, interesting and enlightening. 
so as I said, I uh, hope to see you on one of the other discs. And uh, my next task is Tokyo Fist. Thanks a lot and hope to see you there.